uh, we're down one. We are playing the number one team in the country. We're ranked seventh. There is two seconds left in the game. They inbound the ball on their end as where everyone's walking back this way. I turn around, I catch the ball, step back, shoot the ball, buzzer goes off in the air. Everyone that's watching at home, the internet cut off. So nobody no. even knows. So it cuts off and then all you see is everyone rushing the floor. Hello, Assyrian podcast family. John in Chicago coming at you with episode 174 with Odette Odisho. I want you to think back to gym class or PE or whatever it was called when you were in high school. Think of the kid who was the best basketball player in gym class and how they didn't get through tryouts to make the school team. Now try and remember your classmate who could wipe the floor with everyone on the court over summer break, who was on the school team, but barely got any playing time. Do you remember the two or three very best players on the school team? They most likely never sniffed playing college ball or perhaps played in a lower division. Then you look at Division I college rosters that are filled with some of the best talent on earth, but not everyone gets playing time there either. From there, the very best of the best turn professional and play basketball for a living. Odette was so good that her grade 3 teacher took notice and told her she should play sports. She went on to dominate by the time she was 11, scoring 282 points in 13 games. Uh, for those of you without a calculator, that's 21.7 points per game as a 6th grader. It was only up from there with a celebrated high school career which brought multiple city and Ontario championships to the trophy case and a number of individual honors for Odette, including 2009 Miss Ontario Basketball and Jordan Classic MVP. Due to a crucial setback, her dreams of playing D1 hoops immediately were deferred. She took the scenic route through college basketball to eventually end up playing in the top division at a top 25 program, no less, with her last two years of eligibility. Uh, there's plenty more to Odette than basketball, though. She doesn't have just the physical muscles to be an athlete, but the creative muscles to write poetry and to draw illustrations that go alongside them. These days, Odette flexes all those muscles in unison as the face of her own fitness brand that inspires women on their fitness journey, and like every other thing she's done in life, she's really, really good at it. You can see for yourself on TikTok and Instagram by following at Body by OD. Before I make that bounce pass to our conversation, a friendly reminder that if you are interested in sponsorship opportunities with the Assyrian Podcast, please email us at info at assyrianpodcast.com. Also, our shop is live. When you go to assyrianpodcast.com, go to the little hamburger button in the upper left-hand corner, tap or click shop, and take your pick, really, of t-shirts or sweatshirts complete with our sweet logo with that one dude with the great beard and the cool Assyrian shades. Now that I've gone on for far too long, as I always do, <laughs> I bring to you a conversation I've been wanting to have for nearly two years uh, with the coolest person I know, the multi-talented Odette Odisho. Odette, welcome back to Chicago. Uh, what have you been up to in the last week or so since you've been here? 
Hi. Um, I've just been visiting family. I have not been back here since about four years ago. Last time I was here, I was here for a wedding. So a lot of family. We went to a festival the other day, an outdoor festival. I forgot what it was called. But yeah, just some art shows and that's it. Art and family. Very quiet trip so far. That's it. Art and family. That's, and it's like your history with Chicago goes all the way back. Um, you're originally from Syria, yes. but when you moved to the U.S., your first stopping ground was Chicago. Yes, uh, tell us a little bit about like those early childhood memories. Do you remember anything at all about like life in Syria particularly? Nothing particular, like visually. Sometimes I'll get little snippets, but it's scents more so. If I get a scent of a flower or something, I'll ask my mom, did we have a garden or something with this? And she'll be like, oh yeah, we actually did. I remember having a memory of like being out in the stars and just seeing a bunch of stuff. And she's like, yeah, you guys had a bed outside on the nice nights, everybody used to sleep outside and just kind of look up. So little things like that, I'll remember. But one of my first stories coming into the US, we got off the airplane. I remember um, I just got my ears pierced before <laughs> got on the plane. I was banging my ears around a little bit, so they hurt. And then first time I've ever seen an escalator before. So now little girl coming up this escalator, about four or five coming up this escalator, my shoelace gets caught in it. My shoe falls off and I fall and like skid my knee. So this is like one of my very first memories of entering the States. And I remember just crying and looking at my dad like, I don't like it here. Like I do not like it here. But that's one of my earliest memories that I can remember of being in Chicago. And then just being around my cousins and stuff, they tell us crazy things like we came here and started eating ketchup packets <laughs> and things like that. So we hadn't seen things like that. And yeah, interesting to hear stuff about yourself that you don't even remember sometimes. As a kid, I had this irrational fear of escalators and nothing ever happened on one. So I can imagine if I was in your shoes and I had a lace stuck in and that made me trip and fall, I would never go on one ever again. Literally. I'd be like, I'm taking the stairs or I'm not going. As you said, in your shoes, I just figured in my shoe, in my one shoe, <laughs> you been knocked over. Uh, so you spent about, what, five or so years in Chicago before moving? Yeah, right around there, about four-ish, three, four. So then you're, five, you yeah. find out you're moving to Canada. Yes. What's like your overall knowledge about Canada? It's like You're obviously aware at this point it's like a completely different country. Do you understand why you're even moving or where you're moving to? Literally nothing. We were here for a couple of years and that, like, you don't remember it. Like, looking back, I'm sure in the moment I might have felt something. But here today, I don't remember much about it. I just remember them, them saying, we're going. And we went and it was just that simple. And it was, it was interesting. It was just, I don't know, it was, the transition was very weird. Um, the people were more different than anything. And w as a child, we thought Canada, when we heard about it, we thought it was igloos and things like that. <laughs> Just like cold, cold, cold. We never actually got the time to know people actually live there, you know? But that's all, that was the only impression I had of Canada. They said we'd have a lot of family and that it would be cold. Those were the only two things that we knew. <laughs> we weren't even certain what was there. Uh, so was there like a particular reason why you guys had to pack up and move? Or was it like just better opportunities? Both. Um, you know how it is when coming here as refugees, paperwork and things like that. So we stayed here trying to get the paperwork right, didn't end up getting right. So it was either go back home or get sponsored and go somewhere else, find a different location. So if we could have, we would have stayed here as long as we could have, you know. Yeah. But yeah, it ended up being that it was paperwork stuff. So it was either go back or keep moving. So we said keep moving forward. So what were your first memory? I'm assuming you're in London, Ontario now or thereabouts? Uh, yes, grew up right in London, Ontario. Uh, one of my first memories is my brother's name is Odisha, my older brother. 
So one of my first memories is getting to Canada and we're sitting in uh, my cousin Johnny's grandma's house, okay? And Johnny's sitting there and he's like, dude, you can't have the name Odisho and go to school. We're sitting in the basement like, what do you mean, man? He was Odisho in Chicago. He's like, no, he can't be Odisho here. <laughs> so my cousin Johnny decides that we're going to name him Eddie. You're going to go by Eddie. So I remember my brother changing his name. Eddie. <laughs> yeah. Or getting his name changed to Eddie. That was one Where of my first memories. Where did Eddie come from? Like, what was the significance of Eddie? I think he knew another OD show <laughs> that turned into Eddie, you know, certain names turned yeah. into other names. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I think that's what it was. So he gave him Eddie and it's, we all call him Ed from that day on. So it's like, it's not much of a weather difference, right? You notice a difference in the people did you find it like tough at all growing up there or is it kind of just the seamless uneventful childhood um it you know what i didn't speak the language as well so that was a little bit different my name also odette now let's go first day of school you're in junior kindergarten senior kindergarten first of all a teacher doesn't know how to say your name so every first like day of school i would always be so nervous because i knew my name was going to get butchered First day, they called me Odaidi, and oh, the entire no. class laughed, and I didn't even know that they were calling my name. That's how, not how well my English was at that time, you know? That wasn't even a good sentence, so it's still <laughs> not that good, maybe. But yeah, that part, so that that kind of stuff, and I just knew that I like look different than everybody else. That was the first time I actually just saw it, because around here, I went to school at Budlong, where there was a lot of Assyrians growing up, where I did see a lot of Assyrians, and then... So from Syria, a lot of Assyrians come to Chicago, a lot of Assyrians, then go to my school. There's not one other Assyrian person there other than my brothers. So I just saw a physical difference with me. Um, and then just seeing how people interacted, like not knowing the language was very hard. You're not getting picked for an assignment. You're not, you know, just little things like that. But that, those were the earlier challenges. I remember this is a really funny story. <laughs> so in, I think it was like grade two, I'd yet to actually comprehend in the depth of the English language. So my teacher says a question and she goes, if you could be anything, like, what would you be? Right? So now we have all these kids in the class with experience and these kids are like, man, I'd be a doctor. I'd be this. I'd be that. Right? And I'm sitting over there and I, there's like seven words that I can select from. One of them is sandwich. So I'm not going to be a sandwich. <laughs> so like, so I'm sitting there and I'm like, she's like, what would you want to be? And I was like, I knew goldfish. I said, goldfish. So as soon as I said that, the entire class starts laughing. She's like, oh, what you want to be is a class clown. So I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, okay, I'm going to be a clown this year. That year for Halloween, I dressed up as a clown. Like the depth of this. You took it literally. Yeah, yeah. No understanding of any of it. And then coming home to tell my parents that, who barely understood as much as I did. You know what I mean? So it was just interesting. Very interesting to sum it up. I could go on with stories about the language and the barriers that it caused between us. Um, I used to, didn't go to school for like the first seven Wednesdays of, of school because we had gym. And for gym, you had to wear bare feet. I didn't oh. have bare feet. We went to Walmart to look for bare feet. It literally, little things like this that are so comical and laughable now were a struggle back in the yeah. day. Yeah. No translation, no Google, no help, no nothing. Bare feet. Tell me what a bear is. Yeah. Coming from, <laughs> coming from Syria and here, what is a bear? Right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I don't think bear and think naked. I think bear and I think roar. What did your classmates say or think? Like, did they ever ask you? Because I know I had this experience growing up. It's like, well, you know, they would always ask you, where's your family from? Did oh. you ever get that? Yes. I still, even now, like when I say I'm from Syria, oh my God, your English is so good. It's the next immediate follow-up, right? 
um, or they say, how long have you been here? Oh, you don't have an accent. It's always those four or five things. And then the question shifts from when I say Syria, and then they say, what are you? I'm Assyrian. And they're like, shouldn't you be from Assyria? And then you have to go into that. You know these questions so often. And we actually had a clubhouse about this. Remember, you're like, do we, we go into depth about when people ask you? So when I was younger, I was explaining my soul to everybody. Oh, we're Assyrians. We're born here. You can just find us in the Bible. We started like this. And as I got older, I'm just like, man, just okay. <laughs> okay. You think I'm that? Okay. That's it. Um, just don't worry about it. Yeah, it got tiring, to be honest. Just the repetitiveness and... I mean, it is our chance to educate, right? It is our chance to open the door for people that don't know about Assyrians to really give them a good first impression. But for me, I just found with what I, just being young, being an athlete, always being around players, always doing this, always doing interviews, things like that. I've, oh, this question has come up so many times with people. So I'm continuously answering the same question. So it's just like, at some point I get tired. So like in the middle of your childhood, all these huge adjustments and everything, but at some po- point in time, you developed this fascination with basketball, obviously. Yes. Tell us about how that started. This happened outside at recess on grade three. Um, we were grade three. We were playing red butt outside. You ever, do you know that game? I don't think so. We probably played it, but it was called, called something Called a else. different game, yeah. So you throw the tennis ball against the wall, and then it'd come back, and by the time somebody caught it, you have to go run and touch the wall, right? You yep, know that? played okay. it. Yeah, so we used to play that game. So I was outside one day, and I'm just knocking people out. Boom, <laughs> boom. I grew up with two brothers, so just, you know, more, more of a tomboy growing up. Um, so two brothers, I'm outside. We play catch all the time. So I'm outside just railing this ball. Boom, 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 boom. Uh, the basketball teacher out there, Mr. Pargeter at the time, um, comes out there and he's just like, you ever think about playing sports? Like you had an arm on you. And I was like, no, I don't even know what basketball is. Like I never played. He's like, come try out for the team. I said, but I'm in grade three. The team is like older, right? It's yeah. like grade six and up. I end up making the team. I end up being the captain. Um, by the time my grade, what was it? I think my grade six year. So I was 11 or 12. I like broke the school record. It was like 282 points in 13 games um so something crazy that we hadn't seen before and it i didn't know it at the time no one even knew it. like my parents weren't coming to games no everyone's just like who the hell is this little person <laughs> like you know just energy just going 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 at one point um i think after i broke the record i did a round off back handspring on the court like <laughs> as like a 12 year old kid now kill me you couldn't pay me money no. to go do that i can oh i can do it I can still do the tumble, but I would never do it publicly in the middle of a game like that ever again. But so you were, what, the youngest player on the team? I was the youngest player. Yeah, so it's so funny how my entire career I was always the youngest player. I always played levels up, but by the time I got to college, so we're going to, I know we're going to get into this later on in my journey of basketball, but by the time I got into college, I ended up being the oldest on my team because in Canada, you have the optional grade 13. Right, so I did a grade 13 and then I ended up going the JUCO route, the junior college route, um, and then circling back to that. So by the time I graduated in 2014 with my bachelor's of psychology, and then I was, so I was 24 years old. So at that point, I was the oldest player on the team. Everyone coming in was 1920s and so forth. And we'll sort of circle back to that for sure. I wanted to, because like I'm fascinated by the fact that you you had not played basketball up until a certain point up until this point when you're 12 so you're at practice for the first time and take us through it because there's certain nuances to basketball that 
I think like the average person who does not watch sports doesn't like you know there's man defense and zone and all this other so this is a super technical question but when you're hearing all these terms get blurted out are you like whoa what what are you asking me to do yeah you know what this hindsight that not it wasn't good but right in the moment it was good that the program that I was in was not that developed so those words weren't even used I didn't hear those words till I was in high school so there came like my first like what the hell <laughs> what is that that's the first time we actually got real coaching and this isn't to go so like to discredit anybody for anything but all the coaches that I had that were like in school were just teachers that did this on the side so it was never like their actual main profession or anything I started getting real coaching when I started playing OBA which is Ontario Basketball Association so just like you guys have AAU yep so yeah so I was the Canadian version of AAU and that's when I started getting the basketball heads, the old coaches, the former players, and that's when I really started learning those words. And by that point, it was easy for me. Like my, my fundamentals were down, it it was a gift. It was, basketball is a God's gift to me, I will say that. Will Outside say that. of basketball, like, describe to me more about like this like child or teenage version of you, like what other interests did you have? Or was it, was basketball kind of like all consuming? Yes, basketball was life for me growing up. Every weekend tournament, we're going here, we're going there. I played on two different teams. I played on a team that played in the States. I played in the U16 Olympics. We traveled to Cleveland for a week to do that. That was one of the best experiences I ever had. Um, so my whole life was basically basketball and I was always in the public eye. So there was a bunch of newspaper articles. There was things like that. So I would really try to stay low key when it came to other things. Like even when it, it's not that I, I wanted to go to parties. I just didn't go to parties in high school. That was just not my thing. I was the jock that didn't do any of that, you know? I wasn't allowed half of it. Sure. <laughs> um, but I would do certain things. Like, if we went to a party, it depends on who's there. So I would act different depending on my environment of who was there and how well they knew me. So now, if I'm in a place where it's all my family and cousins and they're throwing a little party, I don't need a beer bottle in my hand. No one's going to pressure me to drink. No one's going to do anything. But when I'm at a different kind of party and everybody's there, different social settings, and everyone's like, why aren't you drinking? What are you doing? I just have a beer in my hand the entire night and just hold it to avoid the conversation of why are you not drinking? Why are you doing this? So funny story. One time I'm at a party. My older brother walks in, sees a beer in my hand. <laughs> Literally walks up to me and just slaps the beer right on the floor. He's like, you don't do this. I was like, bro, I know, but they don't know. You can't let them know. <laughs> So that was like one of my first bonding moments with my brother of like, dude, I know, trust me, I'm not messing this up. I know what I got going on. So very clean kid growing up. Very clean kid. Are you a Gemini, by the, by the way? Pisces. Very uh -huh. in my head. Very okay. in my head. I, um, I always used to say this to my mom. She'd be like, why are you in your room all the time? Why are you in your room? I'm like, <laughs> I'm here, but I'm not. I go everywhere. I go everywhere in my head. Even though I'm in my bed, I go everywhere in my head. So I never really have to leave. Yeah. <laughs> So basketball is kind of this all-consuming thing throughout your teenage years, but uh, looking at all your accolades throughout high school, multiple championships, uh, silver medals, individual awards, when did you begin to understand that you were in elite company at your age group and within Ontario as a whole? I didn't. I didn't. I didn't have anyone around me to, to basically explain it to me. It was something that I'd always been good at. And I was just continuously good at it. I was number one here. Of course, I'm going to be number one there. Of course, I'm going to be number one there. It was just a mindset that I had. But nobody around me really knew what was going on. And that's what happened with even like the way that I went to junior college, 
right? So here I am, I'm breaking this award. I'm an All-American as a Canadian. I'm on the ESPN top recruiting list. My school has never seen that before. So even my guidance counselor at the moment, I'm at a Catholic school, I went to John Paul II. I have four years of mandatory religion. So now I'm, I sign this pep, I sign on my D1 scholarship papers. I'm going to Pepperdine University. The city throws me a party. We're having, you know, every restaurant is good luck Odette, represent us, like very big time, right? And then what happens? I get a notice from the NCAA saying you're four credits short of playing division one basketball. I said, well, I did great on my SATs. I did great on my TOEFL. I did great on everything there was to take. What do you mean I'm four credits short? I said, well, you're four credits short. Um, you should have taken like four extra classes to get into a division one curriculum. So since I took spares my senior year and things like that, my guidance counselor never had anyone go D1, didn't even know to put me on the right track academically to go D1. Mm. So now I have this, you know what I'm saying? Whole city behind me, everything here. I signed to play at Pepperdine University and then whoosh, actually, no, you got to go to a junior college. Let's take it back. So now being stripped of D1, right? That, that accolade alone, like just kind of started to change my course with basketball. That was the first time I've ever seen adversity like that. So now I'm, all right, great. I'm going to do my two years. I ended up going to Daytona State College. So I go to Daytona State College. Pepperdine is still recruiting me. Mind you, this is when like I started really getting into my head about things. What are people going to think about me now? I've never worried about that. Now, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be big time. What am I doing at a little school? I was supposed to be on TV, but here I am. I can't even, my games aren't even advertised here. You know, so it just was that shift of big to small, big to small and going. So now I'm at Daytona State College. Uh, Pepperdine is still recruiting me. I can go there after two years. RIP Coach Maurice, he passes away. My recruiter from Pepperdine. So now I'm a free agent. I can either still choose to go there or I can go wherever. We end up winning. We co-championed my first year at Daytona State. I had an ankle injury, ended up playing nine games and made first team or second team all conference, something like that, just off of nine games. Um, and then my coach got a really, since we won that year, my coach got um, a D1 job. So coach left. So I'm like, you know what? This is the second best division. Let me go play in the first best division in the country. So now here I go transferring to Texas. So I'm in Carthage, Texas for a little bit. Uh, with the school there, Panola. Okay, so I get to Panola now. We're playing in the highest conference in the country. We have a team was, I want to say last place the year before, something like that. So here we go. This is the, the year of rebuilding. I had a coach out there that coached the lotto. Like that woman believed in me more than anything. There was an article uh, when they came out when she actually got me as a player and she called me God's wink. She's like, that's the player that you know, like when you've been doing so good for so long, this is the kind of player you get sent. She's like, she's good on the court. She's good off the court. And having someone that like believed in you, we, she believed in me so hard. I believed in myself that we brought that team up. We didn't finish the best. We didn't do the best, but we got what we wanted out of it. Uh, we brought the team up a couple notches. People were doing well. And then uh, I got recruited by a couple schools. And I initially wanted to go to University of Central Florida. And that's where I wanted to go take my visit and everything. I did a couple visits. And then I went to South Carolina as well. South Carolina was interesting. And then when I went to Duquesne, there's all my Canadian girls there. So a bunch of Canadians that went through, loved it, said it was great. We had a bunch of them go pro after. And the OBA program that I was telling you about earlier ended up becoming kind of like a feeder to the school. So all the good Canadian kids were getting recruited and kind of going to the school. So it almost became a Canadian powerhouse for a hmm. little bit. Um, so yeah, I ended up at Duquesne for my next two years and uh, stupidest injuries. 
the most random little things that just continue to happen, just trial and tribulations throughout my entire career. I'm on game 13. I'm going up for a layup um, against Penn State. Girl hits my hand. I break my fourth metacarpal. I'm out. So I'm out for the season now. I play, what, nine games going into my senior year, come back after this, hit, get a concussion from my own teammate. So I'm out for another three weeks. So my... <laughs> Yeah, the dream was sold separately. We'll say that. Okay, that was a lot, and I was compelled by all of it, so I didn't want to cut you off. And that's that's great, but I want to let's rewind, okay. right? Yes. So you're done with high school. Yes. You're being recruited by Pepperdine University, which for our folks listening at home, that's in Malibu, California. It's Division One. Is anybody else like? How does first of all, without even mentioning anybody else? How was that working? Were there p coaches and people in Malibu, California, watching videotape of this girl playing in Canada? Absolutely. Or were you sending your tape to them? No. So, again, I had zero help in any of this. So, like, I didn't outsource. I didn't reach out. I couldn't ask my parents. There was no one that I really knew that did this. But I did know a girl that went to Pepperdine. So, Miranda I am is her name. She ended up playing in the Olympics. She's Canadian also, one of my girls. Um... But yeah, so she had a good eye out for me and she's always like, you're my point guard. I want you out here. So she kind of put the bug in there like, we got some good Canadians. We got some good Canadians. Go check them out. And sure enough, they were out there, I think, recruiting somebody else and then saw me playing. We're like, who's this? And she's like, that's the one I was telling you all about. And like you so, said, unfortunately, you're a high school guidance counselor. They're used to just like graduating kids and making sure they get into college, like just on a regular basis. Exactly. Let alone D1 you know, athletics. Yes. So they kind of... Fumble that situation. You're four credits short. You mentioned going to Daytona State. And um, meanwhile, Pepperdine is still keeping an eye on you. They're like, we want you here as soon as you get your credits and your JUCO time and everything like that. But the recruiting coordinator, the coach that was recruiting you specifically, passes away. Yes. So then what happens? Does the interest just drop so completely? They're interested in drop-up-minded. Ah. You know? Um, I was going there heavily, heavily in regards to the coach. And he was the assistant coach. But he was um, a celebrity gospel mentor. He was just big, big, big on religion. So very, like Pepperdine is a Catholic school. Um, and just, man, he, he he wrote a book. He He's a very special guy. And again, his name is Coach Maurice. He wrote this book called The Price of a Pearl. And it's just basically, he's always helped women his entire life. His mom was a single mom. So when he became a mentor, it was always towards women um, and things like that. So just carried on the career. So this book that he wrote, it's called The Price of a Pearl. And he sent it, he gives it to all of his players and everybody. And it's just talking about how women are just so rough on themselves and so tough on themselves. But what is like, what does a pearl start off as, right? It starts off in the clam and it takes time and it gets rusty and it gets dirty and it takes, it, just things like that. So just kind of finding faith through womanhood through divinity and growing like that. So it was just him that really drew my spirit there. And once that left, it was just, if I felt different. I felt like the, before my answer was clear, when he passed, my answer was not clear anymore. And it just felt lost for a second. It didn't feel good. Before it was a sure answer. Sure went to maybe, and that's when I knew something had to give. So tell me more about when Coach Maurice reached out to you. Uh, you're obviously you know playing in Canada. This coach either, I'm assuming, gives you a phone call, sends you a letter in the mail and letters. says, hey, we're interested. What's going on in your mind when you get those letters? So I got my first letter. They're not allowed to recruit you until you're in grade 11. So I got my first letter in grade 11, and I was like, oh, it was like from a D3 school. I was like, oh, man, like this is insulting, but like kind of cool. I never got one of these before, right? <laughs> Next thing you know, mailbox, 
full, 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 full. My mom still has every single one of them, by the way. That's good. Um, half them unopened, some open, some I'm not even interested in. So when I first got them, I was like, oh my God, yes, took some as insults. Then I was like, no, just the more that came in, the better that it appeared for other schools, right? Because this is what schools would do. There wasn't, the internet wasn't prevalent like that back then, right? So when they're calling you, like, oh, is anyone else recruiting you? So you can either make yourself appear, you know, and then they're not going to call the other, but anyways, we never got into those games and whatnot, but when he was recruiting me, like I said, he was one of the main reasons. I forgot your original question behind this. <laughs> it was, what was it? Uh, just what was going through your head when you got that first letter from Coach Maurice oh. in particular? Like, okay. what drew you to him? So that, um, Pepperdine was D1. Okay, so that that was like one of my initial first D1s. Then I had a, a newer girl that played there. So now I'm like, okay, I have somebody that vouches for the program because I was scared to leave home. I'm 17 years old, 18 years old. You know, I didn't know what to do. I want to go somewhere where I know someone. But um, they told me that they would be watching my uh, silver medal OFSA game, which is like a state championship. So I knew every coach was watching that game. Everyone that had recruited me that year was watching that game. It was my senior year. Little victory moment here. I'm glaring saying this. Um, two seconds left in the game. Uh, we're down. Uh, we're down one. We are playing the number one team in the country. We're ranked seventh. There is two seconds left in the game. They inbound the ball on their end as where everyone's walking back this way. I turn around, I catch the ball, step back, shoot the ball, buzzer goes off in the air. Everyone that's watching at home, the internet cut off. So nobody no. even knows. So it cuts off and then all you see is everyone rushing the floor. So <laughs> my brothers are at home like, who won? Who won? Mm. But yeah, so this, that was the tape that really sent it off. Um, and then, then my coaches, my OBA coaches were like, oh yeah, we're sending this we're sending this out yeah. so then they start sending that out i ended up making uh being the mvp at the jordan classic and then all that so it just led one thing kind of spiraled into everything and then else. you mentioned um daytona state college uh from what i gathered uh on your bio on the duquesne website you only end up playing like nine games there was that just like a shortened season did you get there late what was the the whole story behind that? i ended up injuring my ankle there Oof. So I injured my ankle first. I wanted the first couple of games. I th and you said, wait, I played like 13 games or something like yeah, that? Something, nine, nine games? Think, yeah, yeah, something even lighter. Yeah, nine. I think 13 is at Duquesne. But yeah, so nine games um, hurt my ankle, but I ended up, like I said, uh, making first state all conference, things like that. And we ended up co-championing co championing that year. And so that's obviously just a short-lived experience. It's that one season. And then you mentioned going to Panola College in Carthage, Texas. And I made a note here for our listeners who are not aware. <laughs> Carthage is very famous for a murder that took place there, which was later the subject of the film Bernie, uh, starring Jack Black. Uh, so I just look, Google that on your own time. It's a crazy story. You watch the movie. I just wanted to, I wanted to get, a, get that out there. So I'm a... I'm thinking this is your first time in Texas, living in Texas. So tell us about that whole experience. It was very interesting. Um, Texas. So I lived in, if, if you talk about Dallas, Texas, completely different experience than what I lived in. I lived in a dry town of Carthage, yep. right? That's, we call it the 10 minute town from one side to the other is 10 minutes. So this Bernie thing um, was crazy at the time. Like, it was insane. They knew him. There was like three churches in the area. So they knew who this guy was. And everybody would say it was the craziest thing because after he was found guilty, there were still people that would be like, oh, no, he's good, man. He's good. So so interesting to see that some of the town people were still like, 
what he did isn't that bad and you know that it was just wild. interesting different side but yeah it was a dry city it was just it, weird weird one big walmart that's it <laughs> one big walmart and they called it wally world it was like an experience people would go to wally world and so you were you were talking about your different experiences so you've bounced from uh pepperdine as your destination then all of a sudden it's not uh you transfer to daytona state then you go to panola at this point uh, when you're bouncing it around do you find it like really tough on you mentally or do you kind of see the silver lining in it at all like what's your mental process throughout all of this it's a hint of both when we're winning and everything is going great silver linings and gold medals all over the place right then when it's going bad hey did i really make the right decision did i do the right thing should i be here but i always i chase number one for a really long time had this competitive nature in me and to be completely honest i've lost it as i've gotten older i wanted to beat everybody growing up and i lost that competitive nature almost my senior year there was a part in me where i was like man i want to help these girls that are doing it wrong rather than beat them you know and my competitive nature almost switched as I got older and it wasn't as fun for me anymore, but I still loved the sport. It was art to me. It was art. But you mentioned switching your kind of competitive streak, but in the middle of this, you're still kind of in the you want to beat everybody phase. So I guess that takes us to, you know, Division One college basketball finally comes knocking again, I should say, right. in the form of Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yes, sir. Uh, how did they enter the fold? Uh, you mentioned a little bit uh, in an earlier response, they're recruiting a lot of the Canadian players, so it's almost like a little Canadian team. Exactly. Was that kind of just their recruiting mentality, or did that was that just coincidence? This, was, uh, this is when it started becoming cool to recruit Canadians, right? Because for a while, no one was coming to Canada. And again, like basketball, we're talking like, realistically like we were kind of the pioneers of the d1 era you know that not even d1 the scholarship era maybe they give started giving out scholarships 10 years before us so this was just very new we kind of paved the way so no one even knew what we were really doing at that time no one even knew i was up for a hall of fame in um canada and i didn't even know because what we did was so big but none of us knew the scale of what we were doing until later on so who reaches out to you from Duquesne specifically? So we are at a state championship game now. We're not in the championship. We're just at the state championship tournament. Um, and we got a bunch of recruiters there. Some of them are allowed to talk to you. Some of them are not. Um, I end up getting an email from uh, Coach Dan Burt at Duquesne saying, I saw you out there. It was impressive. And this is that. And at this point, zero interest for me in Duquesne. I'm, I want to go to University of Central Florida. I've got my letter there. I want to visit there. I got my, you know, Duquesne just happened to offer my visit first. So I didn't even want to take my visit, if I'm being completely honest. <laughs> like, I didn't even want to do it. But everybody around me thought it was a good idea. Um, it's, it's about five hours from where I grew up or to the border of Canada, right? So your parents can come watch. It's closer, this, this, and that. Uh, Canadian feeder school, all my girls that played OBA with me are now playing there. So kind of incentive. And honestly, it just, it made a lot of sense to do it. It made a lot of sense and it felt it felt right in the moment but if i say that it felt it felt like the right decision to make for everybody else this meant i was closer to my mom this meant i was not disappointing my coaches in um, continuing this feeder program they did need a point guard whereas i might have been the backup point guard on the other team things like that so i went to a place where they quote unquote needed me but duquesne was fun man we had good times and i just miss the sisterhood the sisterhood, like we, they, 
we couldn't get away from these girls at the in the time it was annoying you know what i mean it's like man i see you 24 7 it's <laughs> practice it's lunch we live together we're on the bus together but you really miss that sisterhood as an as an adult and you seem just very self-aware with yourself and what you could have and should have done in the past so naturally you majored in psychology yes. why <laughs> yes <laughs> well hindsight is twenty twenty, right um i try to i i try to figure everything out that is my brain's quirk I want to fix things. I don't want to fix things with my hands. I want to fix them mentally. I want to f- I want to take them apart before I put them back, but again, not with my hands. I've never had that. I want to I want to break it down mentally before I go anywhere else. And that was it. I just felt like growing up, you know, we all had our family issues and we have everybody's something wrong with everybody. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to be the Mrs. Fix-It. We don't have a Mrs. Fix-It. We don't have anybody in the women's field that's doing psychology, this, this, and that. And I started going into that. But it was school that just wasn't for me. I had a very tough time wrapping myself around the concept of school. And it started my freshman year of college. My freshman year of college, I was a 4.0 GPA student. Great. Second year, 4.0 GPA student. Great. Third year, I get to Duquesne. And I'm just like looking around. I'm looking in my class. I'm like, man, I just saw that girl last night. Like, she was wasted, messed up. I don't even know if I can say this, like railing coke, you know what I mean? And that girl's going to be my doctor. She's going to be my lawyer. We're all in the same class. So, and guess what? That girl is book smart. So that girl really is getting an A, but in real life isn't getting anything, right? So that's where I started to realize like, man, you can be really school, like book smart and not be life smart. So that's when I started losing kind of like my respect for school, like, what am I really doing here? And I knew it was like a force for women to be in there for the four years, right? So you had to bribe me in the beginning to even like it. But once I saw that it didn't matter that I could graduate with a C or with an A and that these people next to me are going to be my doctors and my pharmacists, it didn't, I, I, I knew I didn't belong there anymore. So like you already had this kind of outside pressure to um, attend school at Duquesne to be closer to home and for various other reasons. Did you get a lot of pressure at all for majoring in psych? Like, did your family go like, hey, how, how come you're not pre-med or pre-law or anything like that? Well, it was funny because when I initially signed to uh, Pepperdine, I wanted to do their fashion program. So when I said that, my coaches were like, are you serious? You're going to go to school for clothes? Like, they didn't understand, <laughs> right? And now look at the fashion in California. Look at that yeah. market, right? But yeah, it was not respected. It was not looked at anything. And then when I said I wanted to take psychology, to be honest, I got two answers. One of them generally was, that's dumb because it's really kind of like broad, right? And then the second one is, well, you can't do anything with it unless you continue your education. So those were the two things that I kept getting from out of that. But I just, again, I'm very... I'm a very intricate thinker when it comes to this. So I'm sitting here now in my psychology classes and I am learning the psychology from from the 1500s from the from the perspective of a white male. I did not read one woman's opinion in my psychology class in my undergrad, not one. Not one theory did I learn from a woman, nothing. And not even people of color, nothing. Nobody. So psychology to me was a Freud. Like, you know what I mean? It, it just I just couldn't stay looped into this i knew there was much more than this for me so i mean you do graduate so you've got your bachelor's in psych 
uh, despite getting this like Eurocentric male-centered education that you completely despised. So as the old heads say, which I guess now we're technically the old heads here, but you have the whole world in front of you. You're graduated. Yeah. What options were you considering at the time? So this is the time where history repeats itself in my life. Here we go again. Just finished, graduated. Now it's time to go pro. We're getting in my tapes. We're doing all this. I'm getting good looks. I'm about to sign my paperwork to go play. We get a phone call saying my mother is sick. So now what? Do I go halfway across? My brother's in school. My older brother's in school and in taking that med program, doing the good things, right? So now what do I do? Uh, I gave it up. I gave it up. I always say family over everything, and this was my time to prove it. If, if all is well and I'm winning championships and my mom ain't good, what the hell is that for me? Right? It was right. That, it's, the, the, the decision was simple. The consequences were not. Right, like seeing it, my mom or anything, my mom never, never have questioned. Don't even ask. You know, it, it's just that simple. But like I said, the consequences afterward of not going pro, I felt like a failure. It was me. It was me. And I come to a city where I didn't even grow up in. So I grew up in London. And my mom had moved to Windsor at the time. So now I'm coming back here to a place that I don't even know. So I'm there, and I'm really just like, what the hell is next? I had never pictured my life without basketball. I knew until maybe just 30. You know, on 24, I graduate two, three years, then I'll figure it out from there. I, if I had, I never made a plan B for my plan A because I knew if I did, I wouldn't execute plan A. I didn't make plan B, but plan B chose me this time, you know? And that's just kind of how it happened. And so you mentioned like you wanted to help other girls and stuff like that. By the time your like competitive drive to be better than them transitioned into wanting to be uh, more of a supportive role. Yeah. So did you ever consider coaching or anything like that? Yes. And I, I'm going to like challenge you a little bit with that. So when I say like I stopped being competitive with them, I began to be really competitive with myself. It was me versus me every day before I enjoyed beating my opponent, then I realized I am my opponent. I'm my only opponent. So I started, like I said, battling myself through these days, trying to figure out what was going on. I definitely will get into coaching. Um, and as of right now, I feel like since my chapter with basketball just did get snipped, it's a love, it's not a love hate. I'm just, there's an emotional part of the, like even saying this, there's an emotional side of the game for me, you know? Um, so I definitely will get into coaching, but I think it'll be later on when I have kids. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So basketball is over with. Yes. Yeah, so What's the fun. first thing you do to make a living after college is done? Too. So I had, no, I didn't even know where to start. But when I went back to um, Windsor, I was Windsor is the third highest unemployment rate city mm. in Canada. Okay, it's no, it's if you look up Windsor, they call it the armpit of Canada. Um, so not many good things to say about that. So even finding a job, like I, try, I think I applied at a library and they told me I was overqualified to work at a no. library. Yeah, so like I was literally trying anything at that point. And I think my first job there was like at the mall. So I'm at the mall and my brother ends up coming back home from school and he gets a serving job. So he's actually table side cooking and doing things like that. And here comes my arrogant self from school, right? He's like, why don't you just like wait tables and stuff? I was like, you think I'm going to clean up <laughs> people's spit and their food? This is what I'm thinking. Like, dude, we had people do that for us all through college. You think I'm going to reverse the role and come here and be that? I said, you're crazy. He comes home one night. He's like, hey, I made this much. I was like, 
you're still crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you're still a little crazy. So after a while, he's like, dude, just give it a try. Like, just give it a try. So I ended up getting into bartending for a, a long time. And ironically enough, my very first day, I don't even know what a rum and Coke is. Um, a lady orders a rum and Coke to me and I'm supposed to go tell now my bartender, right? Cause I'm a server in the beginning. And um, so I go tell her, I was like, the girl wants a rum and a Coke. And she pours me a rum and a Coke. So I take these to the girl and the girl's like, are you dumb? I want a rum and Coke. <laughs> like it was so Just in two separate yeah. glasses, not mixed together, but a literally a rum separate from a Coke. That is hilarious. Yeah. So needless to say, uh, I excelled on later there, but <laughs> the beginning was a little rough. So you mentioned, like, we kind of jumped to 2020 now. Um, you've taken this path that leads you to being the director of fitness at LA Fitness. Yes. Like, do you want to give the background on how you got up to that point? Yeah. So, um, ironically enough, I was training the Princess of before that. So I had just done a three to four month internship with her as like a live-in entourage. And we were in Switzerland. Uh, we stayed in France for a bit and just kind of back and forth. How, hold on. The princess of... There's like, mind you, there's like 3,000 of them. Yes, so of course. one of them. But how do you even get yes. into that? Through family. Okay. Through, okay, well, some of our family had worked for them in prior years and things like that, building houses, stuff like that. And then they put a note out. So if the princess wants a personal trainer, the ad is not going to go on Craigslist, yes. right? So, <laughs> um, so it's just like in family house, stuff like that. So they asked a bunch of people, does it, word of mouth, does anyone know anyone who's into fitness and things like that? So a bunch of people submitted their... Um, resumes and then she was just like i like this girl she because she, she ended up um mastering or i don't know if she mastered or got her undergrad but she was in psychology as well so she was like i like that um this is what sets her aside from everybody so yes yeah, so i was training the princess and then when i so i was i went from bartending to princess <laughs> not the real you know <laughs> one, one she of was the, the princesses princess. yeah so i went from bartending to the princess and then when i came back i was like man i I don't know what to do. Like I, I've always loved fitness. I've always worked. Mind you, I've stayed consistent in the gym this entire time, right? And I worked as a personal trainer before while bartending. Okay, so I train in the mornings and then bartend at night. So it was always kind of there, but I just never took it seriously. And then slowly but surely, I get to um, after coming back from the princess, and I was like, I need to find something secure, um, job-wise. Mind you, I could have worked with her and made great money, but it wasn't happiness for me, right? Um, so when I came back, I just wanted to get into personal training. So I went and I did this interview, and the boss was like, oh, no, like, we're not going to take you as a trainer. He's like, you're, you're a seller. And I'm telling him, I was like, I've never sold anything in my life. Like, I hate sales. I don't want to be into sales. He's like, oh, no, you're going to sell, and you're going to be great. And I'm just like, like, no, no, stuck on no. So he's like, all right, we'll hire you on as a trainer then. I said, okay. So uh, as I'm doing my paperwork, as I'm, you know, I got to take a bunch of exams. I got to pass some tests to get all this. He's just telling me the whole time. He's like, don't do it. Just work with me. Just work with me. Trust me. Work with me for one month. Work with me for one month. So I'm like, you know what? I was like, okay, I work with you for one month. It sucks. You're going to transfer me to training? He says, yes, no problem. He puts me in this position within a month. I've sold three, four, five personal training packages. Sold the company about fifteen dollars to $20,000 worth of training. So impressive for them. And for me, I was like, I don't even want to do this. This doesn't feel genuine to me. And not that it wasn't genuine. I just didn't like selling people because I didn't get to train them afterwards. So I'm selling you on something else and then you don't get to see me after, right? I'm just the mid man. Yeah. So I didn't, I, I put myself in a reverse position 
that if I met you and I love John and John sold me on this and then you're like, hey, you're going to work with Rex. I'm going to be like, what the hell? You know? What happened to John? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it was that kind of thing that kept happening. So uh, I told him like, hey, you know what? Maybe I will like, maybe I'll stay in the sales position. Maybe not. So literally like a month, I was like, hey, I'm going to give like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm going to go into training. I end up having this like rocket month where they're like, all right, you're, you're doing way too good. Uh, we actually want to promote you and give you an assistant position at a different gym. So now they're moving me as assistant. I went from selling personal training to being the assistant director of training in less than six months. Wow. Like four months, I think something. I think I got my... No, sorry. I started in September, October, November, December, January. Yeah, by, by January. Yeah. yeah, month four. Yeah, month four I was transferred into my assistant role and then did well as the assistant there and then someone was leaving a new gym and I was like, you know what? Let me go be the head over there. So I applied for the head position. They gave me the head position. Um, it was in Aurora, Toronto. I ended up buying my first condo out there and just was like, you know what? This is what... This is it for now. Buy my condo, 2019. Um, bought in November. Come 2020, here come pandemic. There we go. So, and yes. at that point, you know, obviously the world shuts down. You have clients that are still reaching out to you. Uh, I'm assuming for like, you're still training people, so they're looking for workouts. So or is this that is the that thing. Work? I'm not even training anybody, right? Okay. I am the director of the sellers. So I have a sales staff of seven uh, men and women that sell personal training, and then I have 40 sales staff that actually train these people. Okay, so now these guys are training them. So I have all these 40 trainers' clients messaging me because I'm the overseer, uh-huh. saying, "Hey, why is LA Fitness still taking my money? Why are they still charging me my membership? Why are they still charging me personal training?" And I'm like literally nobody knows what's going on at this point right like yeah. la fitness doesn't know that cnn the, the, nobody knows yes. it's, it's, a, it's right. our first pandemic right you know being right. part of so i was i was telling them i was like you guys just be, bear with me i'm i'm gonna communicate with you guys as as well as long as la's communicating with me i'm just gonna keep passing everything on to you guys so it goes like we're gonna shut for two weeks right so okay no problem two weeks they open up for like what a day or two and then it goes back to like mandatory shut so now these emails are starting to starting to get nasty you said you were going to handle it and la hasn't even responded yet so i'm like you know what i gotta do something so i'm like i'm just going to make some videos in the meantime just to get people off my back i'm going to make some workout videos for the next two weeks keep you guys happy keep you guys motivated don't lose your motivation we'll be back in two weeks this thing's going to be done so I made those videos and I, made, I put one on. I had no intention of doing any of this. I shot all the videos from my neck down. <laughs> so I had no intention of being where I am now. All my so videos. So before this, like you had no thoughts about being a content creator. This was strictly bore out of like, I need to do something to get these people out of my inbox. So yes and no. In When I first finished college, I thought about it. When I first finished it, I was like, you know what, maybe I could do this. And I started like doing, going on trips and like being a little blogger and things like that. My Instagram started growing and things like that. And I was like, this wasn't sustainable. So that thought of like being a creator and things like that, it was there. I just never put it into life. So now I'm good at things like that. I'm good at tech and things like that, art, um, creative vision. So now flash forward, um, I'm making this video, I'm making this ab workout video. Okay. So Again, neck down, ab workout video. I post it. It's like, it gets like 500 views, but I have zero followers. So I'm like, dude. And this is on what platform? TikTok. 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 So, and dude, I'm on TikTok because of Gary V. 
Gary Vaynerchuk yelling, get on TikTok. TikTok yep. ain't for dancing people. It ain't for da 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 da. You could be 30, 50, da da da. So uh, Gary V literally threw, he used to do uh, tea with Gary V at 9 a.m. during the beginning of the pandemic. So it really, he was like, get on TikTok, get on TikTok. So finally, I was just like, you know what? I'm going to appease these guys and get on TikTok. So I make that video, wait, uh, neck down. Uh, nighttime, 500 views. I have zero followers. So amazing that 500 people saw my stuff, right? Um, I posted like at 7 p.m. or something like that put my phone away, um, eat something, come back, I pick up, it's like 8,000 views. I'm like, wow, I have like 100 followers in like 10 minutes, this is amazing. Now I'm going to sleep and it's, I go to sleep, I think it was like around 10,000 or something, it got quiet, right? I woke up 180,000, I have 5,000 followers. I'm like, what? And that's in what, eight, eight hours, just Literally, about less? Yes, so now I'm like, what the heck? Like, what is this? So now I make, uh, this video I think now is at a million views, but at, wow. at that time it stopped at 798K. <laughs> yeah, my first video, 798K. Um, and then yeah, so that's how it started. <laughs> so obviously you keep building this huge TikTok following. It blends, like it crosses over into Instagram and everywhere else. So up until that point, or uh, what happens next rather, 2021, Yahoo features you as one of the top influencers to follow. Uh, did they notify you beforehand or was it a surprise? Like all of a sudden someone's like, yo, you're in a Yahoo article. Did you know this was going to no, happen? they told me. They told, they told you, me. Yeah, okay. they asked if it was So like okay. what's going on in your mind when you achieve this accolade and like how much does your brand explode after that? So again, this is me being like number one. I, I genuinely tend to not appreciate things in the moment and appreciate them after. I'm like, this is what's supposed to happen. You put in hard work, you get the results. You know, it's not that grateful mindset of, oh man, I'm here. You know, it's like you do it and this is the outcome of hard work. So I never really celebrated anything ever in my life, anything good. I'm like, this is just an outcome, right? That, that's how I see it. Now with that, campaigns start to come in. Uh, hey, can you work with us? Can you do this? I did breakfast television twice. Um, did a couple ads for some companies, commercials, things like that. And it really, that's when it started taking off. Um, breakfast television was huge for me. And if, for the listeners who don't know what breakfast television is, it's Canada's version of Good Morning America. So I did two five-minute segments on there. They loved my first one so much, they brought me back a couple months later by like fan demand. Um, so it was really cool. And then my social started blowing up and things like that. And even, again, remember when I said I didn't do this in the beginning to like really embark on this path? Yeah. I didn't even make an Instagram yet. So my TikTok was just going. I had my TikTok for over a year. I made my Instagram in 2021. So within three months of having an Instagram, I was one of the number one influencers, <laughs> you know? So it, it was strange from the outside, but behind the scenes, that was really what was going on. So TikTok's more obviously like people quickly going through videos and everything. And Instagram tends to be a little more, uh, a little more personal, I guess. So like take us through, it's like between the TikToks, then like now you got to do Instagram reels, which I suppose like you could just take your TikToks and make them reels. But then there's like all the, the bots on Instagram going DM me to collaborate and you yes. don't know who's real and who's fake. Uh, legitimate collaboration, sponsorships, businesses. Like how do you juggle all of that? How do you know who to trust, who you can do business with and like who's not legitimate in that space? It, it really is trial and error. And it's, it's hard. Right now, I'm my own content creator, I'm my director, I'm my customer service person, I'm my videographer, I'm my editor. I'm my, I'm, when I do collabs with clothing companies, I'm my fashion buyer. So now you give me $2,000 stipend, 
I'm fashion buying for the next two or three hours of what can I choose from here? What can I? So everything comes down to like a 15 second video and it's so glamorous and nice. And but like there's so much stuff that goes on behind the scenes that's never seen. And even comparing Instagram and TikTok, when you go on TikTok, I love TikTok for its authenticity. You swipe on TikTok, you're in somebody's trailer house. You swipe again, you're in somebody's mansion. You swipe again, you're on the back of a horse. You swipe again, you know what I mean? You're always somewhere on TikTok. When you go to Instagram, you're in a beautiful, visiting, uh, traveling, a lot of money aesthetic. So for me, the aesthetic of Instagram versus the aesthetic of TikTok, I'm so much more towards TikTok. I'm so much more towards the natural self of just like, hey, get on here with no makeup. Hey, get on here. Say a swear word. Yeah. Say it, you know? Just just be yourself. Be more. I feel, for me, I feel like TikTok is more authentic than Instagram. That's it. And then in the middle of all of that, you know, you kind of reach this level of a legitimate influencer. Yahoo says so. Yeah. So I asked you earlier in, regarding, in regards to basketball, um, you know, like when did you realize that like you got kind of arrived? When did you realize you were good? And you, you, you answered that basically you kind of didn't because you didn't have anybody telling you that. Yes. But now you have people telling you like you're a legit influencer. You've made it. So how is your mindset now in comparison to how it was when you were an award-winning basketball player? I didn't believe them when they told me I was great <laughs> then. And I don't believe them when they tell me I'm great now, John. Everything good or bad holds no space in between my head. Good, thank you, good, out. Bad, come in, good, out. It's, it just, it is that. I will consider myself a successful influencer when I've influenced the five people I love most to put their health first and foremost. That is when I am a real influencer. You can see me and get, you know, watch my videos and do all this. You can feel great, but if you don't put it into action, people have said to me, you've motivated me. But that doesn't mean I've made you start. You know, starting is what I want to get people to do. Just start, just start, that's it. So that's when I consider myself successful. Yeah, who can say it? My mom can say it, your mom can say it, but as, until the five people I love most are the healthiest versions of themselves and I have played a role in that. And again, like that my, we'll use my mom's example. My mom can't be the best worker if she's not in her best health. She can't be the best mother. She can't be the best sister. And, and vice, health is our main essential form of humanity. Without that, you have nothing else. So for me, successful influencer, the five people I love most are healthy. healthy so what comes next? Uh, you know, you've influenced you know, the, the five people uh, and then beyond that, obviously. So what, like beyond the content creation, what's next kind of like in the pipeline of, of your brand? I really, even like the term influencer is strange for me. Um, because I think I just live how I want to, and people do get influenced by that. Some people, you can call it whatever you want, but I just I just don't like the title. I feel responsibility when I hold that, and I don't want that responsibility. But what comes next for me is I will hold the title of entrepreneur. I don't want this fitness. This isn't this isn't the beginning. And this isn't the end of me either. You know, fitness is my footstep in the door. Whether it leads to a podcast, whether it leads to a, a clothing line, whether it leads to my own gym, whether so this door. I've even thought about like even how cool it will be for when I do get married and have kids, how cool it'll be to document um, working out pregnant, right? And then getting that weight off. So this journey as fitness will always be, I feel like, a part of it because it, not because that's how it started, but because it's a part of me. Fitness is a part of who I am. Um, and yeah, it's just, that's where I plan on going. And then you still bounce back between Canada and the US a lot. 
uh, being from Syria and being a Syrian specifically, but also having this well-traveled North American life experience, uh, how much do you identify as a Syrian and how much do you identify as Canadian or even American? Interesting. I identify 0% as American. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I mean, you spent a blip of time yeah, in America, so yeah. I can't blame you there. Yeah, I don't associate any of my identity with America. Um, and even Canadian. I like When people say, like, what are you? I've never said I'm Canadian. You know, like, of course, what, what's your passport? That's when I say Canadian. But um, I identify the most with being in a Syrian. I always have. I just, there's something about your blood. There's something about using your own language. There's something about saying skidli instead of I'm mad. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, it's just, there, there's something about our own blood that has been inside me. And I got the, my left arm says so. There so you go. <laughs> got there the mark you to go. Prove it. Yep. Yeah. Do you still follow basketball and... If you do, why are your favorite teams the Chicago Sky and the Chicago Bulls? <laughs> um, I used to follow very, very heavily. Very heavily the years the Raptors won. Post-Kobe, I will... Man, Kobe was my guy. So post-Kobe basketball took a hit for me. Um, we had a little stint where the Raptors were doing good, and that's when I kind of came back into the cycle of it, but I've never gotten back into the full swing of things at all. Um, I was li- I was staying out in Atlanta for a couple months, so we got to the Hawks games a lot. But if I have to choose, I'm going to go with my Canadian squad, my one and only. I'm going to choose my Raptors. For man. sure, of course. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, I was obviously joking about the Chicago teams. Well, we were kind of, we briefly discussed go- uh, going to a WNBA Finals game because I thought the Sky were going to make it back, but they lost in the semifinals. So now it's between Connecticut and Las Vegas. Any rooting interest in that finals matchup at all? (laughs) Me me too. Me too. I can't even lie. Zero. Um, And we were just talking about how health and fitness are obviously super important to you. So, like, professionally, do you see yourself, and this is kind of doubling back to a couple questions ago that I asked. I kind of forgot that I had this jotted down here. But professionally, do you see yourself in that space exclusively? You mentioned, like, branching out into fashion and doing other things. Um, but do you want, do you ever get that itch to try something? I'll reword it now an itch to try something completely different. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. That's the creative in me. There's so many, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've dropped my life and started it over. Like I've, my friends will tell you, like, I have never lived a normal lifestyle. If I'm unhappy at my job, I'll quit. I don't sit there and say, oh my God, I hate this. I, I hate it. And I, if I hate it, I'm quitting and I will find what's next. I've always had that hustler mentality. But for me, it's like not even seeking happiness. It's just seeking comfort, right? And I don't think money will bring the comfort. I don't think that. But when I do work, I feel satisfaction. When I have done a honest day's hard work, I can lay my head happily. You know, it's just those little things. But yeah, I can see myself just giving this all up and just trying something new. And don't be surprised if that's the case in five years. In shit, in five months. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> it, you never it. know with me, man. You never know. That. And I, I'm open. I'm open. Yeah. Do you ever have any like random ideas kind of bouncing around in your head? Like, man, I should probably like write a book or something. I've had three. Three. I've, I've completed three. You've completed. This one snuck <laughs> up on me. This was nowhere in the show notes or the yes, bio or anything. You've written three. I have completed three poetry books. Wow. Yes. So are they, uh, is this like just a collection of poems? Yes. Um, This is, it started off as a journal, journaling, regular entries, writing about my day as a kid. Today I went to school, today I did this slowly but surely. And 
I just started writing little thoughts or little spurts of moments that really stuck out to me or things that I would make me remember a moment. And I remember actually this time being like, man, you never know when you're about to make a memory, you know it later on, right? You're not, you know? So I started becoming more conscious of like my living experiences. Like, man, this game is not just a game that we're going to, we're making this memory for life. Let's make the best out of it. So I would literally just start writing down little things, little quotes here and there. And it ended up being very uh, like therapeutic. And then when I started sharing them, that's when like, I, I didn't think I was, like I knew I was good, you know, because I'm good. I'm good to me because I understand me. No one's gonna understand me better than me, so I'm automatically good. But when it was when it started connecting with other people, when I was like, there might be something here. And growing up, my mom was a poet. Um, she's won awards, millions of awards, wow. and things like that. Yeah, she won a National Writers Poets Society award one year. She had a poem called uh, Valentine in Court. Yeah, so the writing comes from amazing. Yeah, my mom, but that's a that's why I say like do not be surprised. That's another thing that I want to do, but I I uh, draw and illustrate my books as well. So another thing I did not know mm-hmm. about. So how long have you been drawing? My my older brother's the real real artist. Actually, both man, my family's artistic. All of us, all of us. Uh, my dad can draw. My mom can draw. But my older brother's the best drawer. But for me, it's like it's the it's the diluted pieces, the confusing pieces, the Picasso half this, half that, half chair, half man, half little things, little yeah. drawings like that since I was a kid. Amazing. Um, yeah, since I was a kid. So in my book, there's always little drawings of things and little quotes. And I kind of want to like share some stuff with you. Yeah, you absolutely. Wanna, if you're open to I'm, I'm totally open to it. Let's do it. Um, I'm just going to scroll through here. And like I said, they're, um, they're very little, right? Like I had, you know what? I have this one page in there. And it's the center of a poppy, okay? It's, I drew the center of a poppy. So the center of a poppy is just like little things, yellow things mm-hmm. coming out of it. People have opened that page and fallen to tears. Hmm. I don't get it. Some people open this and they're like, what the hell is this? Some people think it's an eyeball that's like zoomed in really. So it's really interpretational. And there's people that open it and they're like, holy shit, I see pain here. And it's funny that they see pain because what does the poppy represent? The fallen veterans, right? Right, so yeah. That literally is the pain. So like very interesting art correlation that I didn't even try to make you know it just so happened let me find I'm so weird about like sharing who I really am sometimes I mean I'm learning a a ton that's what I'm saying like for me you were like the basketball playing fitness person and that was it I saw like the surface level I I had no idea you wrote you drew yes actually you know what can I read you my piece on expectations absolutely I I think I read this in the clubhouse do you remember this I may not have been there for that you one. You may not have? Okay, so now. Okay, so this is, mind you, it's not brilliant or anything, right? But this is a 21-year-old mindset, okay, writing about expectations. And this is kind of where my D1 experience of, or going uh, Juco D1 kind of just started. So that right now I'm in Texas. So about 21 or 2021, I'm right about in Texas. And I'm writing this because now my expectations of where I am, what am I? what a mat have shifted entirely so um this is a little again little 20 year old mind expectations the silent killer that threatens the existence of happiness everywhere imagine imaginary thoughts and standards set for all hostages waiting to be without expectation there is no hurt it is our own thoughts and our own standards that make us so unhappy if we are constantly molding ourselves around the idea of settling or accepting we have already lost the battle we begin to change 
Changing is followed by tainting almost immediately. We are tainted merely by everything that does or does not happen. Oh, how frail and sensitive we really are. Upon the torture of tainting, happiness falls off the spectrum. It simply becomes a thought that will never flourish. The achievement of it seems unrealistic. But it is we, it is you, and it is I that hold the imaginary gun to our head called expectations. We are suddenly made aware that we are in fact the holder and the beholder. It is too late now. We have become prisoners of our minds. We hold ourselves hostage. I versus I, yet somebody has to lose. Who do you choose? How do you feel like now reading it out loud after... Silly. Silly? Silly. Is it because you can't relate to that anymore? Or is it because it's... You've moved on from that so long ago. Yeah, I just think like... For me, this is an immature thought that that I wouldn't have now. I judge myself very hard. I really do. I really do. If I if some if a twenty year old showed me this right now, I would say, "Girl, you you got it. Like you're in. Your, you know what's up. You know what's going on. You're aware. You're ahead of your time." Yeah. I didn't know. I didn't know. So now when I look back at it, it's almost like silly to me to read it. But I know in the moment I thought it was beautiful. I think in some sense, um, objectively speaking, that it still is because at one point you did think that. But I want to thank you for sharing that because it takes a lot. I mean, I've I've kind of like halfway written short stories and I've never seen never let a single soul see those besides me. So to to open up like that and share that, I I appreciate you. What do you think about that piece? Um, to me, honestly, I was just kind of like, I was kind of smirking the whole time because I could sort of see without ever having known her 21 year old you battling with a lot of that going on. Yes. It's, so that's how I saw it. You saw it. Yeah. And that was it. That's the see through lens, right? The words is all we have sometimes. And yeah. I chose to share that with myself. And the only person that I would ever send my writings to is my cousin, Andrea. That one. Who's, who's here sitting yes. quietly doing a lot of the production yeah, assistance. I would send her uh, all my journals and let her read through them. That was it. That's the only soul I ever shared any of my writings with. Yeah. I hope one day everybody finds themselves in Andrea if they don't have one already. Same. <laughs> You'd be so lucky, dude. And so now, you know, kind of looking back, um, what advice do you have to the teenager, specifically who's playing hoops in high school? And wants to keep playing in college. Just see it through. See it through all the way. If that's what it is, if that is your goal and that is your passion, don't let anybody tell you you're too small. Don't let anybody tell you you ain't fast enough. You can't do it. I've heard that my entire career. I was the shortest player on every team I ever played for. <laughs> I barely hit what, five, six, five, seven right now. So back then, even smaller. So I've had, I had there's teams that I didn't make because of my height actually didn't make my national team, my Canadian national team. Um, I was by far, by far the best player there, and not by my opinion, by ESPN's opinion, by scales, by championships, by experience, by everything. I don't end up making this team when I ask why. What can I do? So I wasn't even upset that I didn't make the team. I was just like, all right, tell me what I can do to improve so I can make it next year. That's the attitude that I came in with as a kid. Tell me what I can do so that next year I can make it. They said, well, we took the girl over you, Um, because she's taller than you so she can just defend better right she's longer than you are so i said okay so what can i work on like they're like you know anyone everyone can always work on their left hand that was the thing that they gave me flash forward two weeks girl blows her knee out they call me odette we need you your time has come i said i haven't grown yet (laughs) and i hung up the phone i did not play for my canadian national team 
because you gave me something that would, if I was any, I mean, granted, I didn't take an opportunity away from myself there, but that was just for a child. You don't, you don't say that. I was smart enough to understand that this is something that I can work through and do whatever, but that's it. Never believe. If you believe it, all it takes is one. If you believe in you, see it through. See it through. I always think of former Toronto Raptor great Vince Carter uh, during an Olympic cycle, uh, dunking on that one seven foot guy, like standing up and just jumping over, over him. And I'm like, that just proves uh, height and size is, is not everything. Thank you. Yes. I mean, for basketball, right? You can, it, you always want height. You can't teach height. That's just a thing. Yeah. That's a thing. You can't teach height. But now if you got somebody who's just taller and isn't as good, it just, but you're still on the team because you're taller, you know? So, but yeah, that's the advice that I would give. I think they asked me that. They asked me that question in my senior exiting uh, thing. I remember going there. My coaches would always razz me about how big my hair was. I have naturally big curly hair. Was, tame that thing. Tame that thing. So my senior year, they asked me, like, what's one advice? I say, you show up, you. If your hair is big and crazy, you make it bigger and crazier, and you show up the next day. That was like, I love it. <laughs> yeah, like, do not stray from who you are. Do not stray. That's like one of the coolest things I've experienced with like just Assyrian women in general. And I guess even guys who have the curly hair is like we've seen a renaissance and just like letting the locks flow, you know, whereas like I think in the 90s, everybody went with a straight like Rachel from Friends hairdo. And now everybody's back to just letting the curls bounce and letting the volume do its thing. And I'm I'm here for it. I love it. I'm with you on that. Um, So kind of similar to that, to the listeners who want to get in better shape, improve their health but like don't even know where to begin what cur- what encouragement can you give them um I'm, this, i will get into detail but it's again that that broad thing that i said earlier of just start right it, a lot of them are saying i don't know where to start you gotta start somewhere go to the gym that's a start read that's a start just make that t- once you take that first initial step my encouragement my page my everything is to push you to take that initial first step when you take that step, you can be helped along the rest of the way, but you gotta want it, right? I can't want you to get in shape more than you wanna get in shape. So what I would tell them to do is literally get in touch, find their goals, write down your goals. Write down your goals, don't even go to the gym. You wanna get in shape, write down your goals. Tell me what your goals are. Once we know what your goals are, that's when we can come to a time frame. That's where we know how to execute and plan to actually achieve, right? Cause we can't, we get a lot of clients that say, I wanna lose 60 pounds in five weeks, come on. like. You need a doctor, you don't need a personal trainer, right? You need a surgeon. So it's just those kinds of things of be realistic with your goal setting, be kind to yourself and just start. Start somewhere. If you don't know where to start, go for a walk. Don't know where to start, go for a walk. Don't know what to do, go run around with your kids. Take your dog for a walk. Just get active, get some steps in and little by little, it'll come together. Make a list and go for a walk. It doesn't get any easier than that if you're trying to start out. Uh, Lastly, uh, we have a big audience out there. Most of them are Assyrian. Some are not, but I consider those people honorary Assyrians just for listening. Uh, what's something in general that you want to tell them? There is two ways you can look at life. You can look at life as the victim or the culprit. And that goes for everything in life, including our health goals. When people say, I've gained so much weight, are you the victim or are you the culprit? Sometimes you're both, sometimes you're one. Knowing where you lie in those, in those two terms will make a lot of your decisions easier. Make sense? Absolutely. Yes. And if anybody wants to find you on TikTok or Instagram, who are they looking up? 
Everything is just at body by OD. So the word body by OD. Very simple. All, all platforms. Odette, I want to thank you so much for making this happen. Ever since we met in Clubhouse, which like for all of you not familiar with it, listening at home, uh, is an audio-only <laughs> chatting app that we created. Well, not we, not us. Uh, Stephanie, who we know and love, Sebi, mm-hmm. those are two of the, the, the people that created the Assyrian Clubhouse, and it still goes on at least weekly. Yeah. I, I've been kind of out of the, the groove for that for a while, but... Ever since we met there and I became a little bit more familiar with your story, uh, there, first of all, there's plenty of people in there I would love to have right. an hour to two hour long conversation with un- uninterrupted one-on-one. Uh, but I knew as soon as I learned about your story, just kind of on that surface level, just knowing the tiny things that I did know about you, I was like, man, it would be great to have her on the Assyrian podcast. And I'm so glad we made it happen. So thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy you had me in here, man. I have been wanting to bring in more Assyrian things to my channel. And we've actually had talks about this on Clubhouse in groups of Assyrians being supportive, non-supportive, and things like that. Whereas I'm not speaking Assyrian on my channel. I'm not really making content. I'm making content for everyone, not specifically Assyrian people. So to get on there and just say a video and all Assyrian, like it's just, it's really hard to kind of manage everything, but like proudly love my fucking people, man. It's just that simple, that simple. I love to hear it. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. I wanted to thank everybody again for tuning in to another episode of the Assyrian Podcast. Remember to check us out on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And check out AssyrianPodcast.com to check out the shop, bios on all of us, and plenty of more information. And remember to tune in every Tuesday for a new episode of the Assyrian Podcast. 